Heavenly Father, we indeed do praise you for your great goodness that we have confessed and praised uh, and professed and confessed throughout this service. Lord, thank you for your great goodness toward us as we give back a small portion of that which you have given us. Use this for the extension of your kingdom, for the good of your people, and most of all, for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Allen back to our uh, pulpit. He has become a regular, and we are thankful for that. So I encourage you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Good morning. It's good to be here again. This morning, our scripture reading comes from Hebrews, beginning in chapter 2, verse 5, and continuing through chapter 3, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what's man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin." That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful 
over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this word that you've spoken by your Son and through your Apostle. We ask that you might use it this day, that you would illumine our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would bless our ears and our minds, that we might hear it, we might receive it, we might cherish it, we might be changed by it. And we pray that what you do with us now as you meet with us through your word would go on to bless others as we're conformed to Christ's image and we go out serving and loving as he has. And so we thank you for the good hope we have in him and pray in his strong name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there are many callings in life and we're actually in a season where you are being approached about a good number of callings, at least if you're anything like me. We are apparently in the midst of the world's longest election season ever, and perhaps you've begun receiving the mailers, the emails, the phone calls, asking for your support, asking for your time as a volunteer, asking for your money, asking for your vote, We're at the beginning of a school year, and whether you have small children and you're navigating uh, the new calendar and the new potential commitments, the extracurricular activities that may or may not take up your waking hours, or if you're considering joining the many various activities here at the church that I've noticed announced even in the bulletin this morning, things being kicked off as a new year of ministry begins. There are many callings out there, many concerns that we might be drawn to, many commitments we might make, many costs we might pay to invest in something of significance. And of course, there are other promises out there. We live in what is very frequently the sunshine state, and so we observe folks young and old alike living out that great mantra, life is short, play hard. And if you've paid attention to the news this week, you'll know that others have lived out that more recent mantra, life is short, have an affair. And we see that there are callings that we can pursue, ways to fill our time, ways to use our energy, our money, ways to locate our heart. Jesus addresses this, doesn't it? Where he speaks of where you place your treasure where you invest. In this text, we read of a calling. And I want to dwell with you for a few minutes on the kind of calling described by this anonymous author writing to this overwhelmed, persecuted people, the congregation of the Hebrews, who we know are being mistreated by those in their community, who we know are struggling and doubting and considering going back to the ways of Judaism from whence They've come, and in the middle of all of that, of all those challenges, all those doubts and questions, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, holy brothers, you share in a calling. 
But he uses a remarkable word to describe that calling. It's a word that appears five other times in this letter. It's a calling from the heavens or from the heavenly realm. It's a calling that can only be described as a heavenly calling. In verse 6, he comes back around to describe the heavenly calling when he speaks of how we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That confidence is an idea that we actually prayed earlier in the service, that, that boldness to approach God's throne. It's not just bravado in general. The word being used there is very specific, and it's used elsewhere in chapter 10 in this letter to describe the boldness, the uh, confidence that only a child has in going past others and walking right up into the presence of their parent, right? I'm a teacher, and one of my great joys is that my house is right next door to where I teach, the school. And regularly, my wife will bring the small kids over, and they love to come and to meet me as class ends sometimes. Only my son has the boldness to, as soon as he knows class is out, race through the door, run up, and jump into my lap. Other students are there for credit. They're there to be graded. They're in jeopardy. Nobody's coming up for a quick hug. Nobody's coming up and hopping in my lap, thankfully. But my son, my son has such comfort. My son has no fear My son has an awareness that he is loved and he can't screw it up. And so he rips through that door. He's oblivious to the 45 other people in the room. And he races up to hug me or to hop in my lap. That's the image being used here to have this confidence and this boasting in our hope. This heavenly calling. Now you may oftentimes have heard that Slogan that you can look at your checkbook and you can look at your day planner and you can identify what matters most to you. Consider that for a moment. We're at the end of a month. Where have you invested? Where have you spent those hours and days? What callings What ends, what commitments have dominated your life, your heart? Where is your treasure, right? This morning, I want to reflect on this idea of having a heavenly calling, of being holy brothers and sisters who share in Christ's heavenly calling who have this confidence and this boldness because of our hope, I want to ask, how does that happen? And how does that grow? Because if you're anything like me, you could say, well, the money gets spent in ways that wouldn't have been the case years ago, and the time gets invested in ways that are better than they were before. But it sure ain't perfect. And I know that too much of the money gets used on absurd, trifling things that don't really matter. And don't show love for the Lord and for others as they should. And I know that my time gets frittered away in things that are fleeting and passing. 
and that the short life doesn't get invested as faithfully as it should. And so having confessed and identified that sin, we want to ask, how does growth happen? How does does change happen? How do you increasingly live into that heavenly calling that we're told if we are holy brothers and sisters, we do share with Jesus Christ? Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, there's a command. I want to suggest this command prompts us to understand how it is we can live into that heavenly calling. The command is quite simple. It's not terribly arduous or impressive. We're not told to offer some remarkable sacrifice. We're not told to go out and exert ourselves in some religiously compelling way. We're told to consider Jesus. To consider Jesus. The word that's being used there, it's it's not a statement of sort of neutral reflection. Like you go to a restaurant and you look at the menu and you consider your options. You sort of weigh the options from afar and throw your lot in perhaps eventually with one rather than the other. No, this is rather the consideration that could better be described as, as meditation or dwelling upon soaking in who Jesus is. And I want to suggest there are two ways this text helps us consider Jesus. And as we do that, these are two ways in which we grow into living out that heavenly calling. First, we see here the dignity that Christ shares with us. And secondly, we see the difficulty that has been shared by Christ himself. So first, the dignity that Christ shares with us. Look at chapter 2, those first few verses we read. It's a quotation from Psalm 8, one of the most famous psalms of the Old Testament. And it's remarkable for its beauty, its scope. If uh, you've ever considered psalms that speak about creation, this is one of the most beautiful and eloquent, right? Speaking of our small place in this huge world. Right? And yet, it's a psalm that so powerfully describes our purpose in this world. What is man that you're mindful of him? Forget that. Focus in even on the most significant man, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, that you care for him. Right? The psalmist is asking this in light of the grandeur and size of creation. Right? You can look up at the sky at night. You can go to the beach and look out at the seemingly infinite horizon and you can feel quite small, right? In the midst of all that, why would God be mindful of you? In the midst of all of that, why would God even be mindful of the most impressive of humans? We are tiny. We're like ants in your backyard compared to the size and scope of all the universes. And yet, we read here, you made him, man, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under his feet. And notice, notice, this is not just true of the Son of Man, one of those great titles that identifies Jesus 
as the greatest human. Because in verse 10, we're told that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, he brings many sons to glory. Glory and honor are not his alone, but by his grace and his love, he chooses to share them with us. There's remarkable dignity here. Some of you will remember the musical Annie. The story of that orphan girl raised in uh, that girl's home in New York City and eventually brought into the home of the wealthiest man in the country, right? Daddy Warbucks. And he's trying out this notion at the prompting of others in his household to have a child in for the week, a very small commitment. And eventually, of course, I'm sorry, it's, it's like 50 years old. I'm going to spoil it for you. You had your shot. Um, you know, at the end of the story, he first tries to help her find her real parents who she believes are still alive and have promised to come back for her. And so, of course, putting a reward out, some crooks come in and kidnap her and try to take the money. And eventually he rescues her with the help of uh, some others. And... Uh, She's adopted into the family. But there's this remarkable scene where this poor orphan girl first comes in to the mansion. And this place is incredible. I mean, it's got an entryway room that is larger than an airport terminal. It's three or four stories high. It's ornate. It's bedazzled with jewels and all of the delicacies that only a terribly rich person can invest in their home. And she walks in, and she's told she'll be here for a week, and she immediately starts laying out her plan for how she will clean the place. Because that's what she does. She lives in an orphanage, and she has to work for her food every day, and so She scrubs the floors, and she washes the sheets, and she cleans the kitchen, and she assumes this will be the protocol here in the Warbucks estate. And in a musical number that I won't seek to emulate for you, she is corrected. She's a daughter. She's not a servant. There's a remarkable dignity, a remarkable grace and blessing that she can't even fathom that's been no part of her experience. She is to be served by them. She is not brought in to serve. Very often I think we forget the dignity God has for us. We come to worship to honor God's name, but we forget that in worship God wants to remind us that we will forever share the glory and honor that is his. And that one of the greatest marks of God's power, of God's love, of God's almightiness, is that he shares what he has. He shares his life, his peace, his wisdom. He shares his blessing and his bliss. He shares his glory and his honor. And that As we read in chapter 3, verse 1, we even share a heavenly calling with Jesus Christ, to whom we're united by faith. And so the first thing we see here 
is the remarkable design God has for us, the, the high dignity that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we're to consider that. We're to dwell upon that. We have so much more than the frittering delights of the day, than the joys of the moment, than the pleasures of this world. We have an eternally significant, never-ending dignity in Christ Jesus. David, the psalmist, speaks to this so powerfully in Psalm 1611. In verse 10, he's just confessed the resurrection of the body and the fact that God won't leave his holy one in the grave to see decay. And then he says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so the first thing we must consider is the great dignity, the great joy, the great pleasure that God longs to give us, the glory and honor which we will share as we are brothers and daughters of the Most High King, of the Great High Priest, of Jesus himself. Consider that. But secondly, the text goes on. Consider how you get there. Because it's not only the case that we're told about the dignity that we share with Christ, but it also goes on in profound detail to speak of the difficulty that Christ shared in making this so. We do not yet see this glory, verse 8 tells us, but we do see Jesus, according to verse 9. Consider the ways that this passage describes Jesus and our sight of him. He's made lower than the angels. He's tasted death for everyone He's perfected through suffering. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, you only children won't understand this, but those of us who've been raised in households with siblings will know that at times you either are ashamed to identify with your sibling or they have been ashamed to identify with you because of your behavior, your clothing, whatever it may be. Christ isn't ashamed to identify with us and to call us brothers, sisters. Christ dwells in the midst of the congregation. And we've got on our Sunday best, but we're a troubled lot. Christ endures and trusts God. He hands over his life upon that cross, entrusting it to God that God will raise him from the dead. Christ shares in our very flesh and blood Christ, verse 17, we're told, is like us, like his brothers in every respect. Christ suffered, we then read, when he was tempted. Christ bore such difficulty. Christ shared such humiliation so that we might share such dignity. How does it describe the results, the goal? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He tastes death for everyone. He brings many of us to glory. He destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He delivers those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people, and he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
in so many ways, in so many ways, Christ bears our reproach. Christ bears our guilt. Christ bears our shame. Christ bears our difficulty of every sort so that we might enjoy the dignity, the glory, the honor that is his and his alone. Consider that. Chapter 3, verse 1 goes on. It doesn't simply say consider Jesus. It says consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession or whom we confess. Think of those two titles. Apostle, it's the only time in the Bible that Christ is called an apostle and it's somewhat strange because apostles in general are people he's sent out. But here it's describing him as one who's been sent out by the Father. He has come down. He has descended. He has pursued us. He has borne our difficulty and our humiliation. His apostleship signifies and reminds us of the remarkable move that he has made in pursuing us. All that he has borne in coming to redeem us. It speaks of that remarkable descent. From heaven he came to save us. He's a high priest. A high priest is one who takes human beings up into the very presence of God. Typically, of course, a high priest takes them in to the very presence of God, going into the tabernacle or later the temple, going into the holy place, and occasionally when preparations are right and uh, things are just so, going into the holy of holies where God's presence dwells in its most, most thick and rich way. And so just as an apostle is sent out and down, a priest is sent up and over. And it reminds us that Jesus hasn't just come down, but he's come down so that he might take us up. He is an apostle who's come down to bear our difficulty, but he's also a high priest who's taken us up to enjoy that dignity. And so in those two titles, we see this remarkable movement that he pursues us and that he then blesses us us. Consider that, we're told. Consider that. Well, very practically, before we conclude our time with this text, very practically, how can we consider Jesus? How can we meditate upon Jesus? How can we dwell with Jesus in the blessing he brings us as his children and in the humiliation and difficulty that he's born for us as our Savior? as our high priest. The text here is going to go on and list a number of things. In the next chapter, it'll speak of the Sabbath rest, the way in which marking the Lord's day is a practice where we dwell with God and we embrace our heavenly calling and we put our trust in God on a weekly basis. And in chapter 4, we'll read eventually of God's word that's living and active and that pierces into us. And so dwelling with God in his word is a way in which we linger over him. We consider him. We dwell richly and embrace that heavenly calling by hearing words from heaven. There are other ways. Eventually in chapter 10, we'll read of how worshiping with other believers 
is a way in which we dwell with Christ. As the Apostle Paul will say in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, that that Christ dwells richly in your midst as you read the word and as you sing together psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That that is a means for Christ to dwell richly in your midst. And the author here in Hebrews 10 will get to that. But here in this small portion... I think the author is suggesting that the first way, an implicit understated way, but the first way that we are to live into this heavenly calling is by prayer. In verse 6, this idea of holding fast our confidence to approach and our boasting in our hope. Whenever he talks about having confidence to approach, especially in chapter 10, verses 19 and following, it's always talking about approaching God in prayer. And so I want to ask, consider your life, not just your day planner, not just your pocketbook and your financial accounts, but consider your prayers. Are your prayers regular? Are they increasing? More importantly, are they heavenly? I played basketball growing up, and I remember when my coach in high school demanded that we practice in fastidious and prolonged ways and gave us pep talks to coax us along. He pointed out that it wasn't simply a matter of putting in the hours in the gym but of doing so in the right way. Because you can continue to practice the same poor form and get no better for it, right? I've managed to have a slice on the golf course for my entire existence, right? Because every time I go out and take a swing, I perpetuate the same poor form, right? Perfect practice makes perfect. Practicing it the way it ought to be done gradually brings you closer to perfection. Practice in an imperfect way simply perpetuates the limits, the weaknesses, and the struggles that you have. And so we want to ask, do you pray in the way God designs you to pray? What do you pray about? What do you pray for? What prompts your prayer? Is your prayer primarily prompted by earthly struggles? by market turmoil, by medical issues, by the relational screw-ups all of us seem to manage to pull off regularly, by weather, all good things, not heavenly things. What we want to see, as the author suggests here, is increasingly a prayer life, an approach to God that is heavenly, that's marked by spiritual concern. One of the most remarkable books I've ever read is Don Carson's book, now titled in its second edition, Praying with Paul. And every chapter simply goes through one of the prayers of Paul in his many letters. And the point, which I can boil down for you in one sentence, is simply that Paul doesn't really pray about the broken arm that much. He does address struggles, and he's dealing with things 
much more significant than likely you and I are. Guy gets shipwrecked a bunch of times, imprisoned. He's dealing with congregations. Uh, well, go read Corinthians if you're above the age of 18, right? It's a mess. And he deals with that, and he takes that before the Lord. But overwhelmingly, his prayers are that he might be sanctified, that God might uphold his people, that God might show himself to his people. They're about God. They're about growing closer to God. They're far more about the heavenly life than about our earthly struggles. And as you consider those prayers, you start to imagine your life, your calling, the way in which you might approach God with boldness and confidence and in hope, not so overwhelmed by the storm to the south, not so overwhelmed by the struggle with your next-door neighbor, not so overwhelmed by the way in which you just can't get it right at work, or perhaps you can't find work. puts all that in its place. One person who exemplified this is one of the most active people you could possibly fathom. George Mueller, uh, the great founder of orphanages, known to rise early in the morning, to work late at night, to perhaps more than any other person in the modern era, bring about the expansion of homes for children who did not have parents. And as you consider the life of George Mueller, it's remarkable to see that by all definitions, he would be described as a person who had great concern about the things of this earth, about suffering, about difficulty, about those who endure the most abject struggles, right? Children, so vulnerable, so helpless, and in these cases, abandoned, seemingly hopeless. And he invested himself, and he worked to bring others in to partner with him in founding home after home to serve these children. But what's remarkable is to consider the way in which he described his approach to each day, his calling, This is what Mueller said toward the end of his life. He said, the point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day. Think about that. This is number one on his day planner every day for the guy who runs the orphanage network. Was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed, understatement of the century. I might, in other ways, seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord, not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, All this might not be attended to in a right spirit. Before this this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, as a habitual thing to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw the, the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God, to meditating on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warmed, reproved, instructed, and thus, while meditating, my heart might be brought into communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning early in the morning. 
the first thing I did after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing on his precious word was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching into every verse to get blessing out of it. Not for the sake of public ministry, not for the sake or preaching on what I'd meditated on, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I found to be almost invariably this. After a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession, thanksgiving, intercession, supplication, so that though I didn't give myself to prayer as it were, but to meditation, it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. He's describing how he considered Jesus. Jesus as he's described in his holy word. And how considering Jesus prompted him to dwell with God. To pray to God. To approach God with confidence and boldness in hope. And then to go out and to serve in such sacrificial, such energetic, such effective such remarkable ways that more of us would be like George Mueller. Not just concerned for the least, not just effective in our work, but bearing the priorities of the gospel. Knowing that God calls us to himself before he sends us to those around us. You're made in Christ, we're told here, for glorious honor. And Christ had to undertake for you a gruesome humiliation. Consider him. Draw near with confidence like a small child and approach boldly with hope. The hope of a son and daughter. He and his kingdom are your heavenly calling. Remember that. Let's pray. Father, we're mindful of the remarkable place you grant us in your family. We're mindful that you've adopted us by grace and we dare not deserve it. And so we praise you. We're mindful that you've adopted us by grace and so we cannot lose it. And so we rejoice in expectation of eternity yet to come. We're mindful that we're adopted by grace and so you desire to teach us, to instruct us, to make us like you. Holy is your holy, perfect is your perfect. And so we pray that you would do so through your word and by your spirit. We're mindful that we're adopted by your grace. And so, like you, we're called to be a missionary people, to take your name and your glory and your kingdom further out and farther away. And we pray that you would grant each of us a sense of of that call. But we pray first and foremost that like Jesus before us, the struggles of this day, and even the terrible, gruesome pain that we might experience, that it would not take our eyes away from you. Just as even in the midst of Gethsemane and in the moments before Calvary, Christ did not ultimately fear the nails or the jeering, but the loss of communion with you. And he cried out not about the torture, but about that moment of God-forsakenness. May we value your presence. May we value the joy of intimacy and communion with you as he did. May we delight in it and know the path of life 
as he's shown us. This we pray in his strong name. Amen. Would you stand and join in singing the